keep your Bibles to uh, turn to Romans 12. So one of my favorite seminary professors, uh, Howard Hendricks, would often say to us, I do not fear that you will fail, but that you will succeed in doing the wrong things. I think one of our greatest challenges is to make sure we're investing our lives in the right priorities, with the right priorities. And so that's why we are doing this mini-series as we work through the entire chapter of Romans 12. It's to focus on our basic priorities as a church. I mean, what we are attempting to do here by God's grace is to help us, all of us, become dedicated followers of Jesus Christ. Not only here in Princeton, but making an impact around the world. And three of the, the most important priorities as we try to live out that mission is number one, to know who God is and what he's done for us. We need to grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. And the second priority that's very important is we need to, to learn how to love and serve one another in authentic community. What we're doing here at Stonehill is not simply to help you be effective in your own personal spiritual life, and we hope that that happens. We're doing it together. And I know sometimes that's difficult for us because if you've lived in the United States for longer than 17 minutes, you are a rabid individualist. I've talked to people in all the different churches I've attended after seminary and, and, and told them, you know, we need, we need to help those who are newer in the faith and, and bring them along. And I've, I've had people tell me, well, they're just going to slow me down. Really? We're a body. We're a body of believers trying to get through an obstacle course together. And so we need to learn to live out the gospel in a community where we love and serve one another. And the third priority we'll be focusing on in this mini-series from Romans 12 is we must be engaging the world with actions commensurate with the gospel and with words as God gives us opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. So this morning, as we dive into the first of these three priorities, it's sort of getting back to the basics. Because it's so easy for us to lose sight of what is most important and to begin to succeed, but succeed in doing the things that are not consistent with the priorities that God has for us. I see that I've gotten two young children out of the service already. <laughs> so this morning as we look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're going to be challenged to see how, how the pursuit of the knowledge of God, how pursuing a relationship with God is so critical. And what we're going to learn is there's a why to this pursuit, there's a what to this pursuit, and there's a how to this pursuit. And we must have all three of those things, the why, the, the, the what, and the how, all must come together if we're really going to pursue knowing who God is together. 
And of course, I want to encourage you. It's not simply what you need to do personally, but understanding the why and the what and the how is going to help you help somebody else and help them along through life so that they can pursue knowing uh, God more intimately and more deeply. So let's look at the first, uh, the, the, the first question here, sort of like why pursue a relationship with God, the why, the motivation, and we see that in Romans 12.1. This is where Paul gives the motivation to pursue a relationship with God. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul appeals to the believers in Jesus Christ, so this is an appeal to believers. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm glad you're here. I think you'll be able to see how the Christian life is supposed to work. But he appeals to the, 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 the brothers and sisters in Christ, but he appeals to them based on the mercies of God. In other words, the actions that he is going to ask believers to do in pursuing a deeper relationship with God is all based on a motivation of understanding that God has already poured his mercy out on us. And then, of course, when he says, therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, what Paul is doing is he's saying, I want you to think about all of the mercies of God that I have talked to you about in Romans 1 through 11, and it's based on what God has done by his mercy that I'm going to appeal to you to, to make progress in your walk with Christ. So you notice that Paul's appeal to us is based on the mercies of God, the motivation to make this sacrificial commitment, which we'll get to, that's question number two, the what, is because of the mercy and grace of God that Paul has been describing in Romans 1 through 11. Paul's message to us is not, everybody needs to try harder. If you take that message away, that's not what I'm saying. Or, or you've got to earn your way with God. Or you've got to work harder so God will like you more. Or some shame-based motivation. Or if you want God's love and acceptance, you better make this all-encompassing commitment to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That is not the appeal. Paul is motivating believers out of grace. So I'm going to take a quick tour of Romans. Trust me, it you'll get out before Sunday school starts. Let me give you a quick tour of Romans so that you can see the therefore, you can see the mercies of God in summary that are to be the motivation for you to walk deeper with God himself. Turn to Romans 3. Let's go back to the beginning of the book. In Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul basically describes that every single person in the world Born into the world is someone who is sinful, someone who is separated from God, someone who is unable on their own to make themselves right with the holy God. Notice what verse 10 says. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And then the end of verse 12, no one does good, not even one. What Paul says is that nobody is righteous, 
Nobody understands, nobody seeks God. That's the condition of every single human being born into the world. That's our status. That was our condition. And then in Romans 3.23, Paul begins to describe how is it that God can take sinful, rebellious people and bring them back into a right relationship with God. Notice what he says in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, but then in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is describing that we can be justified by the grace, the gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus, who was God, fully God and fully man, died on the cross, he took our sin upon himself. And God's appropriate opposition to sin was poured out on Jesus so it doesn't have to be poured out on us. And Paul says that that is how an unrighteous, rebellious person who doesn't seek after God, doesn't understand God, how that person can come back into a relationship with a righteous God is all about what Jesus has accomplished and has nothing to do with our performance. When we put our faith and confidence in Christ, we are believing what Jesus did, not trusting in our own efforts. And when Paul says, this is how someone is justified by grace, grace is a gift through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when it says we're justified, it's as if when, when God looks at us, if you've trusted Christ, when he looks at us, he sees it's just as if we had never sinned. Because our sins were put on Jesus. And then it's also just as if we were as righteous as Jesus Christ. And so we get from this rebellious, helpless, hopeless place back into a relationship with God and God does every last bit of it. We simply believe in what he did. And that is how we begin to be free from and delivered from the penalty of sin. But that's not all the mercy of God. Turn to Romans 6. It's not simply that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We're also delivered from the power of sin. Look at Romans 6, verse 6. Paul writes here, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Notice what Paul is saying is, he's saying that who we were in Adam, this helpless, hopeless person that we were before God, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who we were in Adam has been crucified with Christ. We've now been resurrected to new life, and now we have the capability of living for Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We now have the power over sin because of what Jesus did so that we can live in this new way consistent with the gospel. No longer is sin a de facto power over us. Now, I know that some of you are going to say, wait a minute, man, sin feels very alive to me. I, I get that. Feels very alive to you. But because of the gospel and because of the death of Christ, sin is not actually a de facto power over you. You've been freed from that in Jesus Christ. And so now we have the power all given to us by God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit as well to live in a different way. 
we are no longer under the de facto power of sin. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. But it's not just that we've been delivered from the penalty of sin or from the power of sin. We also are going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. Look at Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What Paul is referring to is that in the future, those of us who know Christ as our Savior are going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. We're going to be resurrected to new life with a new body, and we will never experience sin or any of the effects of sin in any other way, in any way, because Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, has now delivered us from the presence of sin, and we will experience that in the next life. And that is true for believers. We don't have time to turn there, but if you look at Romans 8, 28 through verse 30, it talks about all the blessings of, of salvation, right? He chose us, he, he predestined us, he, he, he brought us to himself, he justified us, but then it says he glorified us, and he speaks of the future glory in the past tense. Because it's that sure that it's going to happen. This is the motivation for pursuing God. This is the why. The reason why we should pursue a relationship with God is not to earn his love, not to get God to like us anymore. He's already poured out his mercy on us. He's already poured out his grace on us. And therefore, because he's done that, that gives us the motivation and the power to live in, in a more intimate relationship with God. It's all because of grace. That is what ought to motivate us. And that's why I, I'm fearful of us. Because I think you're kind of like me. I don't know how many times I've done it. I haven't done it real recently. But as a new believer, particularly when I was in middle school and high school, I constantly would forget about the grace of God. And I would develop these incredible checklists. Oh, they were beautiful. I wish I had saved some of them. I specified how much time I would read the Bible every day, and I followed it pretty well. And then I had a time of prayer, and I would do that. And then I had a whole list of other disciplines I was going to do to cultivate my relationship with God. And I felt, in fact, particularly my, my, my first year of high school, I had this incredible list, and I also was trying, and we'll get to this in a minute, I was trying to, to let my entire life count for God. So everything I did, the academic work I was doing, my, I was playing football at the time, I was, I was involved in the band, I played the trumpet, and, and you know, I was, I was working very hard in all of these ways because I wanted to serve God in every area of my life. I had this long checklist of things I would do, and I did them, and I was miserable. I, was, I, had, I had no joy, I was irritable, Anytime I made a mistake on the football field, I'd get angry and frustrated, yelling at my teammates. I was the quarterback. They didn't like me too much for a couple of weeks there. Yelling at them, catch the ball. You know, you got to play better. How will the scouts see my greatness if you don't do it, you know, if you don't catch the ball? And thankfully, I had an adult mentor who came to me, and as I described what I was doing, he said, you know, these are all good things you're doing, Tracy, but... You have lost sight of the grace of God. 
The motivation for you doing these things has nothing to do with the mercy and grace that God has poured out on you. It has everything to do with what you're trying to achieve in your own power and strength. And while these things are good, when they're not motivated and powered by the mercy and grace of God, they're not going to work. Let me encourage all of us. You've got to keep God's mercy and grace front and center in your life. And you also need to help other people see the mercy and grace of God. When's the last time you had a conversation outside of church where you, you were talking about the mercy and grace of God with another believer, encouraging them? And even if you're talking to another believer who's struggling, right, with sin, I, I know a lot of us, we try to fix the person. You know those people. You love them in the Lord. They're trying to fix you with a bunch of things to do. And most of the things they say will probably be good. But when you're talking to someone, even if they're struggling, remind them of the grace of God. Remind them of the mercy of God. Because when we keep our eyes off of Jesus, and we don't, are not motivated and directed by his mercy and grace, all the good things that we're trying to do will not really, I think, get the results we would love to see because we must be motivated by grace. We must be motivated by God's mercy. And that's the why of what pursuing a relationship with God looks like. There's also the what. What is Paul asking us to do? What, is, what does it look like to follow Jesus Christ? Back to Romans 12. You look at the middle of verse 1 there, he's appealed to them, therefore, by the mercies of God. And then he instructs them, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When you look at the race and mercy of God, what ought to happen in your relationship with God is that you will present all of your life on the altar to be used by God however he wants to use you. It's an all-encompassing commitment. Now, it's interesting. I, you know, one of these, I, I'm an old preacher I used to listen to a lot. He's a great preacher. He used to say that the reason Paul said it was a living sacrifice is because we tend to try to get off the altar. <laughs> that was a joke. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying take your life and all of your living... Make your sacrifice to God of your whole life. Make it holy means it's set apart to God. It, 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 you're, you're, what Paul is getting at is we are to lay down every aspect of our life to him for his service. The word there, present, is, a, is, a, is in the verb, it, it, it means a definitive action. It's, it's, it's something you do. It's something you think about. You look at the mercies of God, and then you definitively lay down your entire being. Your body is a picture of your whole life for God, for his use, for his glory. It's also interesting at the end, the last phrase says, which is your spiritual worship? It's interesting how, how, how Paul frames this. That word spiritual, yes, it can mean spiritual, but oftentimes it means it's your reasonable worship. 
In other words, when you look at the grace of God, when you see what God has done to rescue you from your helpless estate, when you see the way he's lavished his love upon you, the only reasonable response to that is to say, Lord, here's my life. Take it, use it, whatever whatever you want to do with it, it's yours. That's the what. And it's interesting. Um, as, as we think about the what of, of pursuing a, a relationship with God, it's this all-encompassing situation. Is you're never going to do this well unless you keep the mercies of God in view. If you've got a big checklist like I did, you are going to be an irritating, joyless person. Driven, but not driven by grace. One of the things I really appreciate about um, growing a little bit older is I have a granddaughter who has made me question whether every single person is sinful or not, but she is. What I enjoy about her is that it's just different than I, than I was with my own kids. When you have your own kids, and parents, you know this is true, you're worried about them. You're trying to get them, the first couple of years, you're just trying to keep them alive, right? But then you also want them to be a normal human being, responsible. And sometimes it looks like that's not happening too well. And you feel guilty and you feel shamed. I remember one of my children used to throw a fit every time we left a house where we visited and had dinner together. And she would just throw a fit like, you know, I don't want to go back home. I want to stay with them. And she screamed. It was crazy. She was a lunatic. And it was my kid. I worried that the people that we were visiting were going to call Child Protection Services and say, I don't know, but there's a kid who doesn't really want to go home. I said, serious. I could remember, I can still remember the fear I had as I knew we're going to leave in about 10 minutes. And I'm going, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> I'm very different with my granddaughter. I don't care if she throws a fit. I think it's cute. <laughs> I also think it verifies a very important biblical text. You reap what you sow. So when I look at my daughter, I say, <laughs> wonder where she learned that. Not my problem. But why is that? You see, sometimes when I was trying to discipline my children, unfortunately, I was so worried because they were acting in these crazy ways. And I, I was so upset with it. I'm trying to deal with it. And I'm, I'm probably communicating to my child, you've got to shape up or else. You're not going to make it in life. You know, of course, they're three years old. If you don't get this handle on this, it's over. But with my granddaughter, I'm much more relaxed. Why? Well, I delight in her. I don't have the pressure. I mean, a grandparent's great. I, I, get to, I get to go and visit, and then I hand the child back and get in the car and drive away. I'm relaxed. Why? Because I delight in her. I, I, I'm not overly concerned. I mean, I, I want her to do well, and I, she, you know, she's, she can throw a fit and stuff, but 
I, I delight in her so much it doesn't faze me. And I think this is one of the problems we have. Is when we struggle, and you do struggle, I struggle. When we are not giving God all of our lives. When we've got something that's not on the altar. Something that we haven't really let him have full control over. And then God begins by his Holy Spirit to convict us. We sometimes forget that even in our struggles, God delights in you. He delights in you, not because you're good, not because you have all this great performance, not because you're doing everything right. He delights in you because he delights in Jesus. And because you're in Christ, and he sees the beauty of Jesus when he looks at you in a fundamental sense. He doesn't see your sin because Jesus took it. He sees the beauty and righteousness of Jesus. You forget that God delights in you, and he delights even to help you in the midst of your struggles. In the same way, I delight in helping my granddaughter get a little more under control, but I do it so much more winsomely. So much less, you know, less upset by it. And that's what God does for you. And you're never going to really lay your entire life out for God to use however he wants to. Unless you are viewing and meditating and clearly understand the beauty and glory of the incredible mercy and grace that has already been poured into your life through Jesus Christ. Well, that's the what. Pursuing a relationship with God. It's, a, it's, a, it's an all-encompassing commitment. It's a reasonable act given the amount of mercy and grace God has poured out on you. Well, how can we pursue a relationship with God in daily life? How do we put all this in practice? And Paul helps us in verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the how of pursuing a relationship with God in real time. Verse 2 here, Paul exhorts us not to be conformed to this world. We must understand that every minute of every day, the world... Your own flesh, the evil one, is always trying to squeeze you into its mold. And if you haven't figured this out yet, the world is not telling you about the mercy and grace of God. I don't think, and again, if, this, if you have an exception to this, come tell me because we all may want to quit our jobs and work for you. I just don't think there's a lot of companies that, that operate by grace and mercy. Where you come in for your yearly review and they say, you had a terrible performance but you're gonna get a big bonus because we love you, because we're about grace and mercy here. The bottom line, eh, who cares about that? They're not telling you that. Nobody's saying that to you. And so every minute of every day, you're, you're being squeezed by the world, you're being squeezed by these ideas that question the goodness of God, that are not talking about the mercy and grace of God. And in, in the area of where we live, most of our lives are being squeezed by a performance orientation. Perform or else. It's incredible. High school students in this area, the, the pressure they have of putting together a college resume and where they're going to go to school, it's immense. It's over the top. That's where we live. 
Now, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but he gives an antidote. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, we, we need to consistently and, and, and constantly be renewed in our thinking. So what? So that we can see the mercy and grace of God. And then reasonably, in response to that, put our lives at the service of God himself in every single area of our life. Again, I don't want you to get a checklist. I'm worried. Some of you are going to say, okay, I need to renew my mind, so I'm going to read the Bible every day. I hope you do. If the only time you open the Bible is on Sunday morning, you're probably in trouble. I love you, but you're in deep trouble, probably. You need the Word of God. You need other believers speaking into your life. You need the Spirit of God. You need to be praying. All these things are important. But the key here is you've got to allow God's Word and the grace of God that's mentioned in God's Word begin to affect you and change you and motivate you to make this all-encompassing commitment. You've got to let God's Word speak to you. You've got to let other believers speak to you so that you have the appropriate grace orientation, mercy orientation, to put your whole life on the altar for God's use and service. It was several years ago, I remember this vividly, it was right here at Stonehill Church, a Princeton University student who was getting ready to graduate, I think on the Tuesday after he shared his testimony here, and this was his testimony. He said he came to Princeton, he was all excited about coming to Princeton, and about halfway through the first semester, as I remember his story, he thought to himself, the admissions department at Princeton University has made a serious error in admitting me to this school. In high school, he was, he was sort of the, the, one of the top students. But now, in, in the middle of the first semester, he sort of looks around and goes, I don't know why I'm here. I'm in the bottom. He said it was devastating. Filled with anxiety, filled with depression even. Didn't know what to do. Well, of course, the world had successfully squeezed him into the mold. You better perform or you're not not good. You better measure up or or else. And he, he said, through friends on campus, some other spiritual mentors, God's word, the power of the Holy Spirit, he began to see his life more clearly. He was renewed in his mind and began to see that the mercy and grace of God was what was most important about his life and began to even put his academic life under on the altar for God to use as he saw fit. And God had brought him through and he persevered because God had used his word, the Holy Spirit, others in his life to help his mind be renewed so that the gospel and the grace of God would have a more powerful and more comprehensive impact in his life, which allowed him to put his academic life before the Lord and allowed him to be rescued from the conforming uh, ideology of the world that says if you're not the best or if you're not one of the best, you're not, you're not good enough. I don't want to give you a whole bunch of to-do lists, but I, I will say this. We all need to think about how is it that I'm going to combat the conforming power of this world? How am I going to counteract that 
and allow God in his word and his mercy and his grace to transform my mind on a regular basis. I think you need to think about what do I need to do individually? Yes, of course, I think, but you also need to think about how do I, how do I include other people in this process for me so they can speak into me and so I can speak into others. So that we can help each other have our minds be renewed. That's the how of how to uh, pursue a relationship with God. It's a centered on understanding and keeping in view the mercies and grace of God. And that reasonably, the reasonable sort of response to that is to lay your entire life out on the altar for God to use. And the only way to sort of stay in that mode and to to continue to progress is to figure out a way by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, to allow your mind to be renewed and transformed through his word, by the Holy Spirit, and through the interactions you have with other people. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I pray for each one here today that you would help each one. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, that you would, by your spirit, through your word and through our interactions together, would you help us to see the grace of God, to keep the mercy and grace of God in view, and that that would be the motivation to lay our lives out before you. And as we interact with one another and talk to one another, I pray that we would be open about the different ways in which parts of our life are not under, or are not on the altar, so to speak. I pray that you would use each of us, individually, but together in community, reminding each other and allowing God by his Holy Spirit to use each of us in his word and the Holy Spirit to transform us by renewing our minds day by day, hour by hour, so that the grace of God can do what only it can do, and that is to impel us and to motivate us and empower us to pursue you plus nothing. By your grace, help us in Jesus' name. Amen.